Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of The Ethics of Academia. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Helen de Cruz. Helen is the Danforth Chair of Philosophy at the University of St. Louis. She specializes in the philosophy of belief formation, focusing in particular on religious belief, mathematical beliefs, and scientific beliefs. Helen has a quite an eclectic background, which is something we discuss in the podcast. She has two PhDs, one in archaeology and another in philosophy. She's also very active online. She contributes to the Philosopher's Cocoons blog, which gives a lot of advice to early career academics. She's an active tweeter. She's an artist, has some rather excellent artwork, and recently published a book called Philosophy Illustrated, which I encourage people to check out. And she was also a science fiction writer. So a very diverse set of interests. And uh, as you might imagine, we had an interesting conversation about all the various ethical issues and dilemmas that confront us as academics. As per usual, if you like this episode, please consider rating it or reviewing it on Apple or Spotify or whichever podcasting service you happen to prefer and also sharing the episode online in whatever format you prefer. This is always greatly appreciated. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to the conversation that I had with Helen. Okay, um, Helen, so the first topic I usually used to like to cover with guests is something about research, but maybe we could start just with a kind of bit of personal bio, if you like, about your own research agenda, if you want to put it that way. You've taken, I guess, a somewhat unusual route in that I think you have two PhDs and you have a, a background in is it archaeology or cognitive science or something along these lines. So why? tell me a bit about you and how you've arrived at, as a philosophy professor now. So recently on Twitter, I asked people, um, after I saw this movie, it, it basically was prompted by a movie with a guy saying, when I was little, I wanted to be a philosopher when I grew up. So I asked people like, is this, do people like this actually exist? Like before they go to college, would they like to, you know, say, I want to be a philosopher when I grow up? Surprisingly, there were quite some people who did actually want to become a philosopher. So they had read Sartre or, you know, other philosophers that they, like Nietzsche also, uh, that they really got into. But I personally, I didn't quite warm to it uh, as a teenager. I read, I tried to read Hume's Stratus on Human Nature. Uh, it was the one of the few philosophy books in the library when I was 15 and I didn't understand the word. Like, <laughs> I just thought, what is this? So so I didn't warm to it. I read Sophie's World, which was quite nice. Uh, it's sort of like novel about philosophy, but I just didn't get into philosophy until actually uh, much, much later. So I actually studied, I majored in art history and my major was uh, art from the Americas, the Pacific and Africa. So that was my specialization. And I did take as a minor because it was a very small major. I took quite some courses in philosophy, but they were all like Indian philosophy, Chinese philosophy, um, African philosophy. So like not a single Western philosophy course. Uh, then I did a PhD in, in archaeology and art history. Um, and after I did that PhD, so I finished that in 2007, it was a theoretical archaeological thesis on number systems. 
Um, I got into this interdisciplinary project, which was headed by Igor Duven, and it was about um, rational acceptability. And I had applied to it um, and I got hired at, on that as a postdoc. And then I thought, like, I just really would like to do more philosophy because it was a philosophy project. And in that in that project, uh, which was at the University of Leuven, there were lots and lots of um, uh, philosophers who came and talked and I thought, yeah, I also want to do that. But if I want a job in philosophy, then I definitely need a philosophy PhD. But Igor agreed to be my advisor. So that's how I got a second PhD in philosophy at the University of Groningen, uh, where he became a professor. That was in 2011. So that's basically how I got into philosophy. Like I just came to it quite late. Uh, I got really interested in it. The reason I got interested in it is the same reason I was interested in art, because I think art is something about the human condition and about you know how we express our humanity and i think philosophy actually is much the same thing so that's how i got into it yeah and so i mean what kind of work do you do now i mean if if, if there is a sort of mission or research project that unifies what you're doing and there doesn't have to be but if there is what would you describe <laughs> it as being i think that overall i'm interested in the sorts of things that make us human. So, uh, like, so Daniel Dennett has this beautiful image in the beginning of his book. Uh, I think it's Darwin's Dangerous Idea, or it might be uh, Breaking the Spell. I think it's Breaking the Spell. Um, this is a book on religion. So Dennett has this beautiful image of an, uh, an, an ant that crawls up a blade of grass and then jumps. And then you wonder, why does it do that? Well, it's because there's a parasite in its brain and the parasite makes the ant do that so that the ant gets eaten and that completes the parasite's life cycle. So that's Dennett's sort of explanation about why we have religious beliefs. We have religious beliefs because we have these memes, you know, so there's this concept of Dawkins, which now everybody uses memes of, you know, sort of cultural ideas uh, that are in our minds uh, and that basically want to propagate themselves. Uh, but I think that we do have to have an explanation for human culture. Like if you saw this in any any other animal species, if you saw this in aliens, uh, space aliens, you'd wonder like why would they do all this stuff? Like why why would why would we you know make literature and art and 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 why would we mix stuff up? Why why do we have religious beliefs? Uh, so that is actually what I'm really interested in, and I think that uh, as philosophers. Uh, we, we can help to answer that question, uh, you know, using the sciences, using philosophical thinking uh, to, to give an answer to that question, like, why do we do it? Uh, and that's, that's actually what has interested me. So I started out working on mathematical concepts and mathematical ideas, and why do we have these? I also got really interested in the cognitive science of religion, so philosophy of the cognitive science of religion, and I have several books on that. Recently, I've worked a lot on the philosophy of fiction and how, uh, you know, it's sort of like what we do with science fiction, for example, and fantasy. Um, and so that that's sort of roughly, roughly what I'm interested interested in and working on. Yeah, so it's kind of exploring the nature of explaining different belief systems kind of, you know, ranging from mathematics or, uh, to religion to fiction, I guess, and maybe also creative expression, maybe tying into your kind of art history mm -hmm. background. Right? Yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, what, what do you see as the 
the value of doing that kind of research. And I mean, there's two ways of, of thinking about that, I suppose. One is you could think that it has a, a kind of purely intellectual value. You're, you've got a an intellectual itch that needs to be scratched or something like that. Or do you think, and, and the, the, the purpose of the research is largely to fulfill your own kind of self interest or your own, what, what you're committed to, or do you think it has some kind of larger purpose for humanity as a whole? I think it's important that we understand ourselves. Like, you know, you might think of my project and, and I don't know, when I describe it to people, I always think, doesn't this sound a little bit navel gazy? Like we're humans, we do these things and I'm just interested in why we do these things. But I think actually we should reflect more on, on who we are. Uh, as a species, like why we do the things we do. Like, so I don't know how it is in, in, in Ireland and other places, but everywhere the humanities are being gutted. And there is this sort of narrative about, you know, we don't, people don't need philosophy BAs. In fact, we need more plumbers, we need more engineers, we need more, you know, stuff like that. But I feel that, uh, you know, we've always benefited a lot uh, from the humanities and from art and, and stuff like that. Um, and, and it is important to understand the value of that for us as, as biological creatures. Um, so I th I'm hoping with my research to show that, that uh, it has value for us. And so that we should continue doing it, that it is valuable for governments, for institutions, for to, to put money into this, because it is really something that helps us to solve all sorts of problems and issues uh, that we have, like of really practical importance, but also of sort of broader importance that, that contribute to our flourishing. So my ambitious goal is actually to help to contribute to that and to sort of uh, stimmy the tide of, you know, the sort of devaluing of these sorts of pursuits. Yeah, I mean, I want to come back to that notion that you're actually solving practical problems in a moment, but I want to maybe underscore and emphasize something that you, you said, which, and see what, what you think of it, but oftentimes there's this perception of a tension between humanities type disciplines or or humanity type inquiry and utility that there's something that, that they're not they're contrary to utility they're not useful but i mean in some ways even if you're like a hard-headed economics perspective here you know creative industries are you know possibly amongst the most lucrative and um important in human life and you know people invest an enormous amount of time and energy in the creative world and in, in fictional worlds and in different forms of, of human expression and interpreting and understanding that. And, and also, you know, one discipline, humanities type discipline that has always had a huge amount of popular appeal and there are endless TV shows and channels dedicated to something like history, you know, it seems, seems like people are always interested in history mm -hmm. and understanding where we came from, what happened in the past. And it, maybe that has a practical utility, but oftentimes I think people just want to know, right? Not because it has any real practical utility, but they just want to understand how it is that we've arrived at the present point, right? Yeah, I think that's right. So so you're right that even if I were just a cold calculative, like if, if all I thought that mattered was, like even if we just thought about, you know, the sort of uh, immediate economic gain, then even then it would make sense. Uh, but I think that I, I like to take a broader perspective, like William James, for example. So William James in his um, 
critique on Herbert Spencer. Uh, it, so Herbert Spencer's had this sort of evolutionary approach to the mind. And William James said, well, according to you, the most ideal creature, the most optimally adapted biological creature would be a creature that only thinks about its survival and reproduction, like all day, thinking like, here's how I'm going to get through the day, and here's how I'm going to have the most offspring, and here's how this offspring is going to survive. He said, like, that would be an incredibly dull thing. Like, we're not like that, you know, we... Our interests are just broader than you know these these things. Like we want we want a life that is actually worth living, uh, and it ties into other people like Audrey Lord who makes this distinction between you know you want to get by, but there is also just mere survival. And in her view, survival is a very rich notion that also includes things like you know having poetry and and having self-expression and and things like that. So. Uh, and it's interesting that she came to that because she came from a very disadvantaged African-American background uh, that she has this idea that to survive actually means to survive wholly and fully. And that means to have these these sorts of of uh, of things that make your life worth worth its while. Yeah, in terms of the kind of practical problems that you think that this type of inquiry can solve you you mentioned that there's there's issues that are you know of actual kind of immediate significance practical significance what are those and i mean it doesn't have to be your research necessarily but what it what kind of problems is it that you think this type of humanitarian or humanities-based philosophical inquiry can solve i think everything that is wrong today Okay, this sounds horrible to say, but anyway, everything that's wrong today, philosophers can contribute and have contributed and could contribute to helping to solve. So this ties into Mary Mitchley's idea of philosophical plumbing. So she says, actually, imagine even if you didn't have any philosophers, then there's still a sort of implicit ideas that govern the way that we Go about doing things. For example, the fact that there's all these mass shootings here in the US. Why are there mass shootings? Well, because of people thinking guns, including assault rifles, should be purchased by anybody who wants to purchase them. But why do they think that? Well, because of freedom. So they have this idea of freedom. And it's not an examined idea about freedom. It doesn't sort of distinguish between positive freedoms, negative freedoms, you know, positive freedoms such as, you know, like feeling secure, negative freedoms, uh, freedoms uh, of not being being coerced or not being impeded. Um, and so if you do not think about these things, there's still going to be philosophical plumbing behind it, right? there's still going to be unexamined ideas behind it and behind everything that we do there are these ideas you have the science but as we've seen with the pandemic you can't just follow the science right there is no such thing uh, this is something that Hempel already mentioned the philosopher of science there is risk assessment there is okay science maybe says this what do we do based on that so you will always have the opportunity uh, for philosophical ideas. So things about, like, say, the value of work, things about should we give people a basic income? What should it look like? Or or any other sort of money that is not uh, sort of dependent on work. Things like how, like, recently I saw this paper. It came just out in the Philosoph Pacific Philosophical Quarterly. or I forgot where. And I also forgot the author, but I saw the paper very briefly. And it was about, like, what do you do with, like, really, really horrible labor? Like, you know, uh, 
caring for people who are severely ill, uh, collecting garbage, cleaning the streets. And, and this author argued, well, we should go back to the old socialist idea that everybody does a little bit of the work that nobody wants to do. And he argued that this was better than alternatives such as like, uh, you know, uh, pay it more and things like that. So so all the sorts of things that that are now and, and have been for a while, all sorts of problems, climate change, etc. I think philosophy can help to solve those because philosophical assumptions help to structure how what our world looks like and how we engage with it. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I want to believe that too, right? But <laughs> do you not think that philosophers also contribute maybe a great deal of of confusion to these kind of practical questions in, in the sense that, I mean, if you mentioned gun rights, I have a book on my shelf behind me from Oxford University Press about debating gun rights in which you have a, one philosopher de defending the idea that there should be a right to uh, own guns as a, as a core component of the right to self-defense and another critiquing it. Now, I'm pretty confident that if you survey the majority of professional philosophers the view that defends gun rights would be in the minority, but you still mm -hmm. have philosophers that will defend that position. And that's just one example amongst many. You know, you can find philosophers who will defend all manner of bizarre, counterintuitive, maybe mm -hmm. even counterproductive ideas. Um, I, I'm, some of these examples have come up in previous podcasts, but, you know, the, David Benatar can defend this anti-natalist position. Mm -hmm. And I mean, maybe more notoriously and controversially in recent times, Stephen Kirshner, who's written a number of papers, you know, about kind of anti-egalitarianism and anti-consent and a paper which you know, I don't want to misrepresent, but, you know, certainly kind of toes the line between what is acceptable and plausible when it comes to the, the defensibility of adult child sex, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean... If we have examples like that, is philosophy really that useful, practically speaking? I see what you're saying, right? So, and I do, I do share that concern, but I think that is why it's important to, um, like, maybe I am sort of drawn, although I sort of waver, I've wavered over the years of this view of Helen Longinot that you should just have a diffusion of epistemic authority. Like, I don't mind that there are philosophers who give sophisticated defenses of gun rights. Like, maybe, who knows, maybe they're right, and, and the, the, the right to self-defense really outweighs, you know, all the suffering. Uh, I don't know, right? Um, I mean, I haven't thought about these issues in, in, in great, like, I'm not, I'm not a specialist on self-defense, so. Um, but one of the things that has become clear to me recently, when I look at the history of philosophy, and it is interesting. So there's this book by Peter Park, I don't know if you know it, it's about that systematically out of philosophy, out of the canon, the Western canon, that non-Western philosophy was systematically cut away, and sort of sanitized away. Uh, and that's very interesting like so so it's a sort of like the philosophy that we now get 
a lot of it is actually really harmful. So I totally get your point. Like take a lock. Lock's idea about you can just take it uh, if it's of nobody. That means you can just take it as long as there's enough for other people uh, to, to take. So the Lockean principle is, is, is a principle that was very handy for the colonists at the time in the United States. Take away land that was common land uh, that was used by indigenous people. Um, so there is this worry that, uh, and I found this, this so interesting, like when there was a like pro-egalitarian position, very often it lost out. So if you have, for instance, Jean-Jacques Rousseau arguing against the education of women in his uh, Emile, uh, actually he was going against the grain because many people at the time thought women should be educated. Similarly, you had Kant's very racist uh, anthropology, but you had John Beatty, who had all sorts of trenchant critiques uh, against Hume uh, that 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 would stand against that, but but for some reason the very racist philosophy uh, made it, and and the, the anti-racist philosophy didn't. And similarly, Aristotle argued against uh, argued pro-slavery, but he argued against people in his days and times who clearly were anti-slavery. So I do have this worry. Like, I don't want to be too rosy glass, grossly tinted glasses, that philosophy can and has been harmful, but particularly because philosophy hasn't can be harmful and has been used and continues to be used in things that I think are harmful. Uh, it is actually like, we don't know, of course, you don't know if the ideas that you're going to have are going to be good. But if you think you can improve things, if you can do something melioristic, then I think you should go ahead and do it because it's going to happen anyway. If there's not professional philosophers, there'll be other people who come sort of with half-baked ideas. So you'll always have philosophical ideas that will govern how we do things. It's just a given. And so we should better try to do it as well as we can, right? <laughs> so that notwithstanding, uh, you know, pro-torture and pro-pedophilia and whatever, uh, pro-human extinction, um, views that exist. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, the you know the solution to bad medicine isn't necessarily no medicine. It's better medicines, and you can kind of make a similar claim about bad mm -hmm. bad philosophy, quote unquote. That the solution to that is just you know, better uh, philosophy or philosophizing. I mean, you raise a question there indirectly, or a thought indirectly about philosophy as an institution if we can think about it in that sense um and i mean maybe it doesn't make sense to think about it that way we, we, but nowadays we can certainly think of philosophy as a discipline that takes place within institutions historically i guess that wasn't always the case right but the the notion that certain views are excluded systematically that's one concern about philosophy as an institution I know there's a concern which has become very prominent in recent times <laughs> about philosophy, or philosophy excluding particular peoples, you know, from racial or ethnic or uh, gender different gender backgrounds from the academy. And I get you know this is a critique of the academy more generally or university more generally. But do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, beyond I mean, some of the obvious points, but like, do you, do you think? Is there a way of overcoming that legacy? Is this something that is not being taken seriously enough? What are your, your thoughts on that? So I have several ideas on this. I have written a few years ago um, an article about prestige 
in academia, which is maybe what led to this invite for this podcast. I don't know. Uh, but um, I think that uh, there's lots of intersectional dynamics going on there. Uh, and I think that that means that we have to continue to think about how we can make philosophy a welcoming place for as many people as possible. And I'll give one example. So a few years ago, several years ago, you had this blog called Feminist Philosophers. And one of the things the blog did, I don't know if you saw the blog, it's now um, discontinued. Um, it had the gendered conference campaign. And the gendered conference campaign was basically uh, a campaign against all male panels and all male uh, volumes and stuff like that. Uh, and I feel like uh, that campaign was a great success. Uh, and it was also, but one of the things that made me think about this, um, and you know, it's almost like people think immediately about, oh yeah, gender, let's do, let's, let's make sure, you know, for, for like five speakers, should be at least one woman, right? Um, but, you know, uh, there was this paper by somebody who basically, he, he didn't mean it, I think, in good faith saying, yeah, you know, why not also make sure there's one disabled person and one person of color and one, you know, and, and he, he clearly meant this to discredit the campaign, but but there is a legitimate question there, right? Like like what, what makes gender uniquely important in that respect? Uh, and so you had um, the editor, the commissioning editor for philosophy at Cambridge, University Press, who said, I have seen so many volumes die in the stage of, of conceptualization quite far because people could not find a single woman to contribute. And I found that quite interesting. So I'm thinking like, yes, gender is important, but I think we have to continue to think about how we can make philosophy more accessible. And one of the things, just one thing I want to highlight that doesn't get enough attention is that there are philosophers all over the world. For example, there are lots of philosophers in African departments, but except for a few philosophers in South Africa, nobody ever gets invited, nobody ever gets into panels, nobody ever gets into editorial boards. Uh, there are no conferences organized there. And if there are, then, you know, it's something like, oh, let's do one close to Kenya National Park uh, so that we can have a great holiday, but not in a way that really benefits the people locally. There's also huge visa issues. So it's incredibly difficult for people from developing countries to even attend conferences. Um, and I feel like nobody really seriously, there isn't enough attention for this issue. In fact, Peter Singer, a philosopher whom I greatly respect, uh, when, when he was asked about this, like, why don't you contribute? Why don't you collaborate with African philosophers? He said, yeah, you know, honestly, I don't think, I don't know, he didn't say, I don't think there's good, but he said, look, you know, I want people with, with good philosophical chops. And, and so, I mean, this gave a sort of local outrage that he said in the New York Times that, that you know, somehow he didn't think that, that they were a par. But I think that actually, you know, lots of people in the profession have this sort of elitist bias that white Anglophone departments in certain countries are sort of centrally better. Um, so, so I feel like this is something that we should do something about. And there's many, many other issues besides uh, that I worry a bit 
like uh, if you're sort of doing things about like gender and even racial representation like in how far are we genuinely making this an inclusive conversation that everybody can take part in and, and how far are we just like shutting out most of the world so that's sort of like my i don't know what you see where i'm going right um but but i have worries about that yeah i mean i just wanted to look up the the Peter Singer quote, just to, just make sure it's a, yeah, represented yeah. correctly in the conversation. So he, he said that I want to work with people whose ideas are, you know, at the level of discussion that I'm interested in and that I'm progressing. If you're thinking of the work of Africans, for example, I don't know the work of many of them that is really in the same sort of, I'm not quite sure how to put this, participating in the same discussion as the people you've just mentioned to some other you know, uh, Western or global North-based philosophers, I guess. Right. So... I mean, he didn't, he didn't come out and say explicitly that they're <laughs> not as good, but there's kind of an implication there. I think he may have backtracked on some of those comments sub subsequently, um, but people can look up the, the full details of that. Um, but uh, yeah, I did want to mention something about the gendered conference campaign that I found interesting about it. And one reason why a campaign of that sort might be quite effective. And, and I think you're right to say that it was effective, certainly within philosophy, but and it's and it definitely is something that changed my thinking about this a little bit in that one of the goals of the campaign was not to engage in any sort of blaming or or questioning the motives of people involved in organizing these campaigns they just said like it was just to highlight any conference where you had all male panels right and on that blog if i remember correctly the conversations were typically like somebody would respond saying well you know we we tried really really hard to get women to appear we couldn't get any or etc cetera, etc cetera. and then the organizers would respond by saying you know we're not blaming anyone it's, this isn't about whether you had a legitimate excuse or anything like that it's just we're highlighting the fact that this is the case which i thought was an effective tactic insofar as you're not explicitly critiquing people or you know saying that you're challenging them on a personal level you're just highlighting this phenomenon and you could do something that's similarly effective with you know, geographical diversity, ethnic diversity, other kinds of diversity that you might be interested in uh, promoting. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's actually an effective tactic for a campaign of that sort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, uh, sorry, now let me get my bearings on, on where I want to go next in the conversation. Um, yeah, okay, let, let, let's kind of circle back a little bit here. We might ask another couple of questions about academic institutions towards the end. But one of the things I usually like to, to ask is about the duty of an academic, if any, to the public, right? And one of the things I would note about you, when you asked like why, why you were invited to me on the podcast, or you, you didn't ask, I suppose you, you queried it in, in one of your answers, but and one one reason is that you're somebody who's very active online, um, right? And you, so you write a lot on this website, The Philosopher's Cocoon, which is, I guess, directed towards other academics, giving kind of advice. You're very active on Twitter, although maybe that's a slightly more recent phenomenon. But I mean, I've known about you for a very long time. So you're somebody who's, who's you're very prominent, I would say, at least in, in the online world that I spend a lot of my time. Uh, and you do a lot of things like the beyond just your core research. So wh why do you do that? And what do you think the value of that is? 
So I think that uh, for many academics, doing things publicly like that is superrogatory in the sense that I think that many people, like let's face it, most many academics now don't even have a tenured position. Uh, and I didn't for a long time when I did all this public stuff. Uh, I just thought it was interesting to try to disseminate philosophical ideas. Like on the one hand, I'm interested in disseminating them to a wider public, because I think many people want a bit of philosophy in their lives, but it's also very daunting. And we specifically, we sometimes, I think, revel a little bit in that. Like there's a lot of sort of what I see in philosophers when they are online, uh, and I don't blame them, is things like, ah, gotcha. You know, Plato didn't really say that. Actually, Plato said this, and then something super obscure comes, and then I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not an ancient philosopher. What do I know? But immediately people say, oh, yeah, I've heard of Plato. He said this. No, 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 he didn't. I've heard of Kant. He said this. So there's this sort of thing about, you know, you have to be super precise, right? And, and when people try to, who are not philosophers, try to get into the conversation with philosophers, what we often do is we sort of try to, you know, wriggle at the, you know, sort of debate <laughs> their understanding of philosophy. But I think that is a very unproductive way to do things. Like, I think that uh, that what you can do is try to give people a better understanding, give them tools, uh, you know, rather than saying, hey, your understanding of Nietzsche is completely wrong. You know, you could just say, like, here's one of some of the things that Nietzsche says, and here's how that's relevant. So that's the side, sort of public philosophy I really like. It gives people tools for thinking. Uh, you know, sometimes you you can, you need a different perspective on things. Like we have this in everyday life, right? Uh, that you uh, you know, you're sometimes stuck, like you're stuck in a certain way. Like you can't make headway in a certain problem, and then you have a friend, and they give you a different perspective. And I think actually philosophers are a bit like you know dead and living friends who give you a different perspective on all sorts of things, and maybe. You know, I know that not all philosophy is like life philosophy, uh, like, you know, somebody like Pierre Hadeau would say philosophy is just, you know, helping us to deal with life. I don't think that that's true, but a lot of it is. And for people who are interested in public philosophy, that's what it is. So so there's that. I think that we don't have to do this, but if you like to do it, I think it could be beneficial uh, to help people uh, to learn more about philosophy. And uh, the cocoon is such a great initiative. So it's not my initiative, it's Marcus Arvin's. But I've worked with Marcus now for many years on this initiative. And one of the things that we want to do is to give uh, particularly early career people resources. So this is really a blog for philosophers by philosophers. And we want to give resources about things like how to navigate the job market uh, and all sorts of questions and conundrums that people can be dealing with. Uh, just to give another perspective and, you know, <laughs> some advice you know, to take or leave as they want. Um, but I think it's important. Like I uh, was very lucky. I, so, so I was really philosophically speaking, I was at the periphery, like I was in the Netherlands, uh, which is sort of like, I mean, it, it's not the periphery periphery, but it's sort of like it's outside of the Anglo-Saxon world. And uh, it was difficult to find a job. And I was on these postdocs. And I had to navigate everything. Like I had to learn all these, the sort of implicit rules of academia, the sort of etiquette 
sort of way, like you are in, in Castiglione's uh, book, The Courtier, you learn all these rules about how to be a courtier. Well, similarly, there's a way of being an academic. Uh, so I learned those sort of through experience, but I think that many people benefit from just being explained explicitly how these things work. And I certainly had the benefit of a few very trusted mentors, uh, just senior people that I knew and trusted in the profession uh, who explained these things to me. So, so it's basically a way to pay that forward. Um, and, and that helps people who otherwise just don't have the institutional or other contacts to, to learn this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I did want to ask maybe a couple of questions about the cocoon since we, we've raised it now. And I suppose you've anticipated the main question I was going to ask, which was, you know, do you, do you see the writing on there and the sharing of know-how of how to navigate academic politics or rail politic as, do you conceive of it as like a, a duty that you owe to the profession and to up and coming colleagues? Or do you just do it because... You don't even think about it that way. It just comes very naturally to you. I mean, it's an interesting question here as well, but like how we, I would view what you're doing as quite a positive, in a positive ethical light as maybe a super arrogatory thing, right? But maybe you don't even think about it as an ethical. Yeah, act. I'm just not sure. Like, just like I have difficulties thinking in terms of rights. Uh, I know that we, we think in terms of rights, like that's how our societies are organized, but I find it difficult. Uh, similarly, I find it difficult to think in deontological terms of duties. You can you know, reject the premise I, of the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but but I, I don't know. I don't know if we like. I think there is a certain way of like being an academic. There are many ways. Like I'm a pluralist about being an academic. I think actually that it can be a really good life. I know that people always bitch about uh you know how how hard we have it and of course the state of academia is a mess and it's an unjust mess right so we are in a structure that is super hierarchical so it's interesting academics are all egalitarians but we are in this very hierarchical structure we're super sensitive to things like prestige oh no this person is from yale and and currently works at harvard and they sent me an email you know versus somebody from a small community college so everybody has these sorts of like dynamics we're in this super unjust system you know our students pay extortionate at least here in the, in the us i don't know how it is uh, where you are, but they pay extortionate amounts of tuition fees, and it's just it's just terrible, right? Uh, and you know how do you how do you get by in in a fundamentally unjust system that you help to contribute to, right? That's just I think a very difficult question. So I feel like if we are in such a situation and we have the privilege and the time to do so that I don't want to talk about duties, but it feels like it's it's not a good it's not a good way of being an academic if you do nothing, right? You need to do something. Some people are super inspiring to their students and they go above and beyond. Other people, you know, they reach with their academic writing. Take somebody like Martha Nussbaum. She doesn't have, to my knowledge, like a Twitter presence. Like if she started a Twitter feed, you know, everybody would go to it. But as far as I know, she doesn't. But you know, she has touched so many hearts and she's touched so many minds with her capability approach and with her, you know, sort of like her approach to, to animals and ecology and, and stuff like that. Um, that's a good way of being an academic, right? Uh, 
you could be a good public philosopher. So there's, I, I think there's a plurality of things that we can do. And I do feel that we should, in some way of should, do something, right? Do something to make life better for at least some people, um, while acknowledging that the structures that we're part of are really suboptimal. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's come up in, in other episodes about the injustice or injustice of academic institutions or the university system as a whole and how how can you kind of live with yourself within that system and how, how do you kind of reconcile maybe your kind of egalitarian or di different kind of set of social moral beliefs with the actual practices of the academy uh, is something that I, I struggle with as well I, I, I did also want to like pursue a question more on a kind of personal level so I presume you don't have to write anything on the philosopher's cocoon, and it, is it? It may, and actually, maybe a lot of your public philosophy. I don't know how your institution feels about it, but maybe there's a sense in which it's not actually rewarded, or it's not part of your kind of formal assessment. It's so it's, it's sort of something that you're really doing in your own time or um, of your own kind of volition. How do you how do you kind of reconcile that? I mean, do, do you do you struggle? in your own kind of life, but kind of balancing what is in your interest as a career academic versus what you like to do, how do you manage those conflicts? I mean, just, I, I can speak kind of from my own uh, perspective here. And I've written about this publicly on my website. Uh, and I mean, this might be part of your experience too, but I mean, I've, I've certainly found this very hard for myself when it comes to my role as a parent and doing research or any writing and that, you know, I have I've two kids under the age of three. So, you know, that uh, has its own kind of challenges, but it does seem to be like every, t every time I spend like doing any kind of research or writing is time taken away in a sense from them. And a lot of the research time that I have is, is in a sense optional in that like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be majorly criticized if I don't write another article or publish another article this year, you know, it's not going to actually, affect my my career all that much and, and i'm fortunate in that position so there's always like that i can trade-off that i i struggle with i mean it, it doesn't have to be a, a, a that example but it'd be just any kind of that kind of balancing mm -hmm. these different competing demands on yourself there's always more we could be doing ethically speaking right but you also have to kind of look after your own interests too so how do you how do you think about that yeah, I think that's very difficult. So yeah, I also have two children, but they're older. It's one of them going off to college um, this fall. Um, and it's 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 difficult also because that oldest child, she has uh, yeah had so many moves because yeah, it took me several moves to even find a permanent academic position. Um, so there's that. Then next to that, I'm fortunate to have this position. So I do have uh, how to put it so i have a good academic output i'm now going to finish a book that i'm writing i have several other things in the works so i have enough to show for because indeed these things in the cocoon etc i don't even put those in my yearly evaluation reports even though i do spend time and even you know like the threads on twitter that i write uh, yeah, I don't put those in my evaluation either, except the one on Kant, where I had like 100 tweets summarizing the critique of pure reason, because I thought, yeah, quite a few hours in that 
<laughs> I should put that in. Um, but in my previous job, so my previous job was much more teaching focused. I was at Oxford Brookes University and Oxford Brookes University is uh, like a teaching focused university, it's post 92 university in the UK. Uh, and they had these sort of like numbers and I only taught five courses a year and I didn't do that much admin. And so they put like always in red the numbers that I fell short that I didn't do because I had so many hours for research. I had so many hours for teaching and the number of no hours for teaching that they did was really ridiculous. Like for every hour you taught, they gave an hour and a half of, of hours, which is like, I mean, that half hour would then be the preparation and all the grading. Like it was completely unrealistic, but they did that deliberately. And so each year I was in the red and I got complaints that I wasn't doing enough. But in the meantime, I was doing all the service. Even then, you know, refereeing a system that's completely broken, it didn't count for them. The only thing that counted for them was when you did admin sort of stupid busy work, such as, uh, you know, evaluating, the, the, the grading of other people, which I thought was totally odious and a very bad feature of UK academia, where you have this sort of thing where you're all checking each other's work and create a mountain of work. Uh, so that that was very bad. Like I felt like I, I couldn't, I just couldn't function in UK academia because it didn't trust the academic. Like I think as an academic, you have a lot of unstructured time and you're right like you could take more time and many people do that than the usual like 40 hours but at the same time you're also more home etc so how do you balance that with your private life and i think many of us feel some sense of dissatisfaction in how we you know because you think yeah i could have spent that time playing with my kids or i could have uh, i think one of the things you can do is sort of put some some rules like i try not to do research past six o'clock uh, in the evening. That at least gives something. I try to take some weekends, like I, I would like to say every weekend, but I don't really get to that anymore, off to, you know, do, do things with the family. Um, but it's just difficult to, to make those calculations. But at the very least, it, I find now that I have this uh, American and an endowed chair position so it, it actually isn't that much of an issue. You have a lot of academic freedom. Um, so then at least you can make your own calls about how much you want to put into each uh, rather than sort of like hours and numbers. Like I think that we don't really work well with that sort of system. Since you raised this, I'm just going to throw this in as a, a kind of question and see what you, your view is. How many papers do you think you should re review per year? And I'm not asking like how many do you, but how many do you think you should, or one should, an academic should review? I think one formula that I heard that is good, and I definitely always meet that, but I, I referee more because I'm in the editorial board of, of several places. And so you, you do have to referee more, is to referee at least double of the papers you submit. Um, so if you submit, say, three papers a year, I don't say like write, but submit. Sometimes a paper you have to unfortunately submit to more than one journal because it gets rejected. So say you, you, you submit three papers, then I think you should, you ought to. And I really think here the duties apply, uh, except the referee six. 
uh, I, I think that that's a nice sort of number because it would make it more sustainable. However, one of the things that I did notice is that many senior academics, and I'm also now, uh, I don't submit that much to journals anymore. I still do, uh, but I, I, I concentrate on like editing books and writing books. Uh, but I still think even so that, you know, something like six, six to 10 papers a year seems to me like, unless you are, and I think definitely if you're an adjunct or, or you know, in another, then, then you can do less, right? But if you are in a tenured or tenure track position, that sort of seems to me like a good ballpark figure. I just put it out there because I do edit several journals and I have such a hard time finding referees. Yeah, I mean, talk a bit about that. Cause you, you did kind of recently um, talk about this online that the, and you mentioned it in this conversation that the refereeing system is broken. I mean, this isn't necessarily a purely ethical thing, but though it does tie into maybe the duties of at least senior academics. Why, why is it so broken? I think because it is not valued, right? It's just people will make rational decisions. People are by and large rational. Refereeing doesn't, and, and people also have this. Okay, so I've talked about this to several editors. And I think off the top of my head, five editors of five different academic journals, because I'm just saying this because when I put it out there on the cocoon, you had lots of people who said, no, I don't have a problem finding referees. If anything, it's better now. But I don't know, like I talked to these five editors of philosophy journals, and they all told me the same thing. The system doesn't work and has significantly worsened since the pandemic. So it seems to me also that since the pandemic that people sort of like this was a huge shock to people's system and, you know, has sort of pushed people out of their sort of routines. So so all of a sudden you also find yourself like like, you know, like maybe you and certainly I like without childcare. Uh, and, and, and regular school and your children are just at home the whole time doing doing school online and, and, and you just feel like you know I have no reserve like there's the mental stretchiness is gone like the sort of amplitude of thinking yeah I can do this I can handle this and all of a sudden you're feeling like you're in this sort of really thin zone uh, and, and I feel that this sort of exhaustion of being in a place that doesn't have stretchiness to it you just start to think, okay, what can I throw overboard? Let's not iron my clothes anymore. And also let's not referee anymore. So I think it's just simply that like people, they refereed a bit out of habit and feeling like they have some sort of duty, then it's pandemic. And then they think, why should I put up with all this stuff? You know, life is short. <laughs> and I understand that I totally do. So I think it is just that it is just a kind of mental fatigue and, and lack of routine. That, that has made this worse but yeah now we have to try to convince people to to referee again or we have to rethink the system right we can also just say you know let's ditch the system do something different do the post post publication peer review that people like uh liam bright and and uh, marcus arvin propose maybe we should go that way like maybe maybe this is better yeah, I mean, I, we don't need to get into this now. I mean, I might interview Marcus or somebody along those lines about that mm -hmm. particular proposal because there's more to it. But um, I can see the merits in that. I, I do think like the refereeing system, it's it's it seemed like a classic sort of free rider problem in that you're not actually challenged for 
defecting by not reviewing in a sense. So it's mm-hmm. it's always tempting to do it, right? Even if you're submitting lots of papers, you're going to say, well, you know, I no one's going to really kind of call me out for not doing it. I mean, they, I mean, they, I'm thinking in my own institution, if I'm going for promotion or something like that, like the only thing on the list is like, do you do any reviewing? And I can I can highlight I've done lots of reviewing in the past, right? Like I have all these journals that I've reviewed for in the past. I don't actually need to do any more to kind of show how uh, you know wonderful I am in terms of reviewing. But I do I do I do review a fair bit. I do like I I was kind of opposed to it initially, but I think something like publons where you have a kind of gamification of reviewing mm-hmm. isn't actually a terrible idea, and it does allow me to at least publicly signal to people the fact that I do. A reasonable amount of reviewing um yeah. If, yeah, assuming it's accessible i haven't looked at it in a while but yeah i do think there's some value to that we we've been talking for a good while um do you i uh, do you want to ask me or do you, do you have time to pursue some questions on teaching or do you want to wrap up i'm just wondering we can we can still do teaching okay. i will say one thing uh, that just yeah, came on, to on, my mind on the review very briefly there was one person at the journal of analytic theology who sent a paper in and the managing editor said to us, the executive editors, this person, he has never said yes. We've asked him like over the years, like six, seven times, he always says no. But then he said, keeps on submitting papers to us. Like, you know, uh, and, and yeah, we were sort of thinking, yeah, that's, that's not very nice, right? I mean, clearly he can write, but he can't review. Uh, but then, you know, we sent out a paper anyway, and the first referee <laughs> said yes, <laughs> exceptionally. And I thought, well, you know, there's no, so, so you're right. People don't get punished for that. And yeah, I don't know what to say about it more, but it's just an observation. They can get away with it. I, I mean, I do think about that sometimes if, if I've just submitted a paper to a journal and they ask me to review something, I think I am slightly more likely to accept the um, invitation to review. That's and I have, all, I have, sometimes I've wondered that the request to review comes out suspiciously close to the time that I submitted the paper. So that maybe there, there was some, oh, I could ask that person to review that paper since yeah. they just submitted something they might like to do it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Go okay. Ahead. I mean, let's talk a little bit about teaching since it is a core part of being an academic. What, uh, what do you typically teach? Maybe we can start there. So this fall I teach um, uh, a uh, grad seminar on philosophy of mind and I teach uh, the biology and mind course for pre-med students. This is the second time I teach it and I made it entirely, so it's a philosophy of mind course and I made it entirely on less commonly taught philosophical traditions. So they'll hear of Avicenna and, uh, you know, uh, people like that, uh, Zhuang's uh, uh, Akan philosophy of mind and things like that. Uh, I did it last time for the first time and it was so fun. So the students really, really enjoyed uh, that course. I got a good, good teaching evaluations. I've taught a lot of philosophy of religion over the years. Um, so now I have a very low teaching load. I only teach like three, four courses a year typically. Um, I've taught intro courses of various kinds. I've taught an experimental philosophy course that I tailored myself. Uh, where the students actually had to go out and interview people and had to get ethics approval and, and stuff like that. That was fun. Uh, so yeah, I've taught a, a wide range of things. Maybe we could take up this idea that you're, you're including sort of non-traditional perspectives in this course that you're teaching this fall. I mean, is that something that you you think about a lot? Or you take seriously the, the need to diversify your curriculum in terms of 
you know, the authors that you're assigning students or and the perspectives that you're assigning to them? So I think given this book that I earlier mentioned by Peter Park, that Western philosophers have explicitly excised non-Western perspectives from the canon, that it's actually, it's good that we stop doing that, right? That we, we no longer do that and see philosophy as this sort of thing that started in Greece and then, you know, in the Middle Ages and the early modern period, but as a global phenomenon. Um, so I think it's important. I also think like, so, so one concern you might have is, ah, but if they see, so for example, about dualism, they don't see Descartes on dualism, although I mention him in passing, they see Akon philosophy uh, of, uh, of, of mind by uh, the, the Ghanaian philosopher Goethe. So he talks about uh, the sort of implicit in, Ga uh, in Akon culture, this idea of the, the mind and, and the body and, you know, that's so he sort of defends the idea that this is dualism in a sense that is similar to, to sort of Cartesian substance dualism. And then you have other uh, African philosophers who criticize that. So one worry you might have is, yeah, but will the students then not know Descartes? Isn't that a problem? But since they are not philosophy majors, like they are pre-med students, I don't think it's, it's a big issue also. You know, the, the work by Avicenna on, on philosophy of mind is actually, you know, just as important for Western philosophy, just that it's been, been cut out um, as, as the work of, say, Aquinas. Um, so I, I feel that uh, it does give them a sort of insight into to different ways of thinking, different ways of approaching things. Um, so it's just also interesting for them, like many in the student evaluation said, uh, that they'd never seen this sort of philosophy, that never, for instance, learned about Chinese philosophy, and they found it very interesting. Um, so, so I think it helps the students to just like students want to get different ideas and get get exposed to a wide range of ideas, and this helps us to do it. I think this might be a question as well that you would have a view on. Do would you ever excise someone from your curriculum? because of their own kind of checkered moral history. And I'll, I'll speak here. I don't teach this subject, right? But um, on something like philosophy of mind or philosophy of social, uh, kind of social ontology, I do, I do write a bit about this. And there's one author who's very influential, a guy called John Searle. Uh -huh. right? And I, I, I feel very iffy about citing him now. So I mean, for people who aren't aware, I mean, I'm not. I, I'm not going to try and to toe a careful line because I'm not sure exactly what is accusation versus proven kind of legal facts of issues of defamation here. But he certainly has a very checkered history when it comes to um, sexual harassment of of students um, and a number of accusations against him. Right. So I, I wouldn't. I don't know. I. He's a he's a common kind of reference point, but I I, I I do feel kind of iffy about citing or engaging with his work now. Do you have a, you, I mean, you don't have to use that example. You don't have to speak to that example if you don't want to. But do you have any kind of issues with other authors? I find it such a fascinating uh, question, right? To to sort of think about, like, say, take Heidegger. So. Heidegger is so problematic, like he was such a convinced Nazi and, and, and in fact, his philosophy has 
you know, it's permeated with this sort of idea of the soil and the environment. And it's, 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 it's very disturbing because there's interesting and positive things there about, you know, preserving your environment, the risks of technology, right? Um, but, but then I, I sometimes would think, okay, why am I including Heidegger, but not, why do I feel qualms about Searle? Right? Uh, is it because Searle is still alive and can still benefit, whereas Heidegger doesn't? That might be be a thing. So I do share your qualms. Like I could have put, like I put a little bit of sort of comparison with Western philosophers, and you know, I mean, I don't know if he would have been there in the syllabus if there wasn't that problem. But now, certainly, you know, you you think about, oh yeah, you see. Like, could talk about cell here, but you know why? Sh why should I talk about cell when I talk about the problem of of uh, translating and artificial intelligence? You know, uh, so so it certainly is a sort of um, how to put it push factor, sort of pushes you away from. But it's not like I feel like if it were really difficult not to mention him, uh, then I would still mention him, right? I mean, you know, if, if I think it's important to be intellectually honest in, in your citing, which is, of course, a different practice, right? Like, if Searle played a role in the sort of thing that you are writing, then I think it's important to acknowledge that. Uh, but in teaching, we do different things, right? Uh, teaching doesn't need to reflect your intellectual journey. Teaching can just be what you find important to convey to the students, right? That's why I think that teaching should not, that we shouldn't specifically aim, like this was my worry when I first taught intro to ethics, I thought, oh no, I have to make sure that I do John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham and Kant and Aristotle and like the, no, the, the, the ethics. But you see, uh, in a place like Oxford Brooks, there were just 12 weeks of teaching and it was just like one session every week. So if you put all those names that you want to have, then you have a very Western male white canon, right? Um, so, so I feel that one of the things that you can do in teaching and you can let your teaching be even sort of influenced with the considerations that you mentioned. Uh, but certainly one of the considerations I think is that you want the teaching to reflect things that are relevant for your students something that they can take away rather than how representative is it uh, and in that respect you could actually cut out so uh because maybe you know is it necessary for the students to to see that particular part of like is it absolutely i don't know there's many ways in which you can construct the syllabus so i can see why uh, i just haven't been faced with that problem but i i, I think i probably not teach him yeah, I, I think, as you say, there's many ways to think about it. That when, when you're teaching in you know, the modern theory, anyways, that you're always going to start with, you know, what, what is it that you want students to get out of your course? You kind of work back from, from there to mm -hmm. you know, the particular mod, you know, classes or modules and the authors that you might be assigning for, for readings. And so you're right that depending on your goals, no, it's never going to be essential to teach it's rarely going to be the case that there's one particular person that's absolutely essential to teach. If you're teaching a course on Plato, of course, you're going to have to assign Plato. Or if you're going to teach a course on ancient Greek philosophy, you know, it's going to have to be in there somewhere. But if you're teaching something broad on you know, the history of political thought, you don't have to assign the Republic to people. In fact, I would argue that in many ways, that's a very inaccessible text to a kind of modern student undergraduate 
audience, you have mm-hmm. to kind of explain so much about the historical context and what Plato mm-hmm. was trying to achieve to really get them to appreciate it. Uh, you might be actually better off starting with something more contemporary, right? I mean, I, I might, this is, I just actually interviewed him, so the book is in my mind, but you know, I might start with something like Jason Brennan's Against Democracy, because at least that's like really controversial and people can get right into it, right? But it, yeah, so there's different goals, different audiences, different purposes to teaching that you need to bear in mind when you're assigning materials. Um, okay, I mean, maybe just like another question on teaching, we could sort of kind of conclude on this issue is is to think about the um, I suppose the, the the end the end product of teaching. Uh, and maybe it's two separate questions I want to look at here. One is like, what, at the end of your courses, what do you typically want students to have achieved? What, like, what, what is the value of the course from their perspective? And I, I may have a follow-up question and then about how you assess that. But we can talk about that first. But what's, what's the value to the student of what you're doing? I think, so at SLU, um, every student has to take an intro to ethics, an intro to philosophy, and an intro to theology, I think, right? We just had a recent curriculum overhaul, but as far as I know, it's still the case that our students need to take intro to philosophy and intro to ethics. And so the vast majority of the students, like we we have a small major, I don't know the numbers, but like it's like every other philosophy major, there's not many people who major in philosophy, but we have hundreds of students, all the incoming freshmen, will take this intro to ethics and intro to philosophy, which means that you can uh, just try to think about like, they're not going to take that many philosophy courses normally. So you could try to make this uh, something that has significance for them. Uh, And I know many people will sort of say like, you know, we try to teach philosophy and there was this whole project in Notre Dame philosophy as a way of life, you know, following uh, people like Ado, that, that, you know, you can teach students, you know, to use philosophy as a way of life. And I think I'd love that. And I love the exercises and I've assigned these myself, like, you know, be a stoic for a week and stuff like that. But I think ultimately my goals are a bit more modest. So uh, I, I, I took a lot of Ubers coming here uh, and then people would ask me, what am I? Well, so I still, I still haven't got a car. Can you imagine? I'm here in St. Louis, the most car dependent city that I've ever lived in. I don't know a car, but anyway, I'm in this Uber and people will ask me what I am. And I say, I'm a philosophy professor and they say, oh, philosophy. And surprisingly, many of them have taken philosophy in college, a course of philosophy. And many of them don't remember a single thing. Some of them say, I think, therefore, I am. So Descartes has this huge impact on people. I don't know. But that's sort of the one thing they remember. But some of them will say, like, I don't remember a single thing. But the philosophy really helped me to see things a bit differently. It helped me think about things in a different way. And helped me think about, you know, if you have a thing, if you have any sort of problem, you could think, oh, yeah, that's, that's the way to think about this. But in philosophy, I got the idea there's other ways to think about it too, right? And that, I don't remember for the life of me, said one of these super drivers, what it was, but that has always stuck with me. So I'm thinking, if I could be that professor, then my mission is succeeded, 
right? That's, I think, that's the only thing we need to do is like have some sort of intangible but enduring influence on uh, how people perceive the world. Like maybe not how they live, but but something about how they approach product pro problems in their lives. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's an interesting goal. And I mean, I, again, I wrote a, a piece on called The Trouble with Teaching on, on my website, uh, where I explore this problem from my own perspective and that, you know, I teach I teach in a law school, right? I did this my, my day job to the extent that it, it doesn't occur every day, but um, it's a day job. Uh, and I remember nothing of any of my lectures that I attended as a student. I mean, I teach contract law every year, but until I actually taught it, I remembered nothing of it, even though I took the course and passed it or whatever, you know? So I remember very little of what took place on a daily basis, but I do have some memories of things that occurred in class, but they're somewhat like random. And sometimes they're because there's one particular incident I recall, which I'm not, I won't go into the nitty gritty of it, but the teacher had an exercise that they wanted to perform, which was about, I guess, the unreliability of eyewitness testimony or and how you get competing perspectives or interpretations of the same event. And the incident completely backfired because it involved us watching a movie scene and then people were sent out of the room and they had to come back in to they'd be questioned. Or they had to question us about what we had just observed. But the exercise failed because people thought that it was a game where they had to make it as difficult as possible for them to figure out what had happened. Uh -huh. And they kind of cut the exercise short when they realized it wasn't working out. And that's what I, re I remember that class. <laughs> and I was like, well, what if I end up being the teacher who kind of does something that backfires? And that's what students remember about uh -huh. me, that you know, it, this thing didn't work. It fell flat in its face. And that's the enduring memory that uh -huh. your Uber driver has in the future. Right. It's um, possible. Yeah, no, yeah. this is the thing. This, I think this is the, the challenge of teaching is possible that that's the legacy that we leave with people is something mm. that we didn't anticipate or intend, right? Um, yeah, I, I, like I had, I had one last question that we can, we can wrap up on this, which is just on how you assess students and the, the process of, of assessing students. A lot of critiques out there of grading and the grading practices you can find online. Do you, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that about like, is, is grading just an institutional necessity and you get on with it? Or is it something that you think about in ethical terms? So I think we want to teach our students two things. I want to teach my students two things with grading, and I'm still very imperfect in this, but this is where I've landed on. On the one hand, in our daily lives, we often have to do things that are just good enough, right? Like, am I going to cook the masterpiece or am I just going to cook food that we can eat and that is reasonably healthy? I think sometimes it's nice. Sometimes you're really in the zone and you make the masterpiece. You make the gourmet. Uh, but often good enough is good enough. Like very often good enough is good enough. And also in our students later, professional life, good enough is good enough. So that's why a significant number of the tasks that I do are submit something. It has to have the following features. If it has these features and there's no plagiarism and whatever, you get full credit. But very sometimes you really can't satisfy. Like you, like recently, and I've noticed this, like, you know, you know, as an academic, if you send a paper, you want to send the best paper. I'm now writing this book. 
on Wonder. I'm, I'm wrapping it up and I want it to be really good. So I'm doing multiple rounds of edits. I'm doing line edits. I'm looking at individual sentences. And I want the sense to be like, I'm thinking like, what's the best adjective here? And like yesterday I spent an hour thinking about an adjective. And then I was thinking, what am I doing? This book has to be finished by the time the academic year resumes. And I'm chapter one, spending an hour on an adjective or spending two hours on scrapping an entire paragraph. But sometimes that is really what we need. Sometimes you have to do the very best you can and so I think that with things like the big essay, I tell my students, look, you know, if you you will only get an A, not if it's good enough, but really if it is the best. But it still means in practice that many of my students will end up with an A minus if they do all the sort of stuff like, you know, submit this with these criteria. Uh, they'll still have an A minus because it, it's so much on someone like even if I'm stringent with the big essay. But I still think it's important that people understand that there's these two different things in our professional lives. Uh, and that's what I want to convey with the grading. I don't think that, I don't know, I'm trying to disabuse them of this notion of like, how can I get my grade up? Like the grade is just there for them to learn. So I'm trying to help them. And I also explain my grading policy. Uh, and that does seem to help. This does seem to reduce grade grubbing. They know that I'm stringent on the final essay for that reason. Like I want the very best essay. Have you sweated over an adjective or haven't you? Uh, I think that's important sometimes. You know, we want to be sometimes excellent. Yeah, I like I like that philosophy or that approach because you know, some of the other conversations I've had, it's kind of all or one. You're either kind of all on the excellence metrics and all or else all on the kind of satisfying side of things. But I like the way you're kind of dividing it up depending on the assignment and kind of uh -huh. the nature of the product that they're asked to uh, submit so yeah i think i think that's a a useful useful tactic for people to to employ anyway i i you know i think i've taken up enough of your time so let's wrap it up there and i just want to say thanks for for joining me for this conversation thank you joe thank you it was nice to talk to you okay uh, thanks for